Hello, and welcome to the Black History Month Cambridge Stronger special episodes. I'm Amy Weber, President and CEO of Cambridge and host of Cambridge Stronger, a podcast where culture counts and values matter most. In recognition of Black History Month, we've teamed up with our Diversity, Equality, and Inclusion Committee to offer a two-part series. We believe building a diverse and inclusive work environment is more important than ever, particularly in the financial services industry. We hope we can help provide awareness around diversity in our industry and discuss many ways we can all help create a more inclusive environment. I'd like to welcome our guest, Connie Bettis of Paradise Wealth Advisors. We are honored to have Connie as a member of our Diversity, Equality, and Inclusion Advisory Council. And we'll talk more about that here in just a few moments. Welcome to the show, Connie. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So excited for this particular uh, podcast. I think our audience is going to get great things out of it. So let's just start off. Um, you serve on our Cambridge's Diversity, Equality, and Inclusion Advisory Council, as I just said, and I really want to thank you for that and for your leadership. I also know you're a well-known speaker and advocate for topics such as diversity, financial literacy, and various other things as far as women's groups and, and other topics like that. So please share with us your story about how you got to where you are today. I got laid off from um, Verizon in 2008 and the market was down. It was a time where consumer confidence in financial services was really low. I had to make decisions about my resources and I was approached to um, for a position at Prudential. I did not want to really go into financial services, but I wanted to be able to understand how financial products work since I had to make decisions myself at that time with my resources. And once I got licensed and um, came, come, to, to come to the understanding of what most people just don't know about financial products, financial planning, um, it led me to want to one, empower myself, my family, my friends, my former colleagues that I worked with. Those They were my first clients were um, individuals who I worked with who also had got laid off. And when I was at Verizon, we had a employee, employee resource group, which was, well, they had several. They had employee resource groups for every demographic uh, in the company. So when I first started there, the first thing they reached out to me is, you need to join the, you know, the African-Americans. Uh, at that time, it was Bella PA. Um, and so I've always been part of the diversity in um, groups in my previous companies. Even when I worked at Prudential, they had a diversity team there and I represented our branch office um, whenever they had a conference every year. So I think my passion for um, diversity from a perspective of a end user, a client, and a professional, whether it was when I was at Verizon as a project manager or just even as a financial advisor, um, when you are working with people trying to understand their unique differences really helps you be a better employee, a better advisor, um, because you're, we're all so different. And um, it just really kind of just brought me to where I am here today, you know, but uh, what, what I love about the business is it, it gives me the opportunity to really just try to help people who have not had an a opportunity to really be exposed to 
um, the tools that we're able to offer them to help them get financially correct. When you're just in a situation where they're too proud to seek help, um, I find that you know, we are able to help people who probably would not have went out and looked for, for our help just, just through my community engagement. Talk a little bit about what your business looks like today. So evolving from that first entrance into the financial services arena, it clearly has evolved a lot. Um, you're running your own business today. Tell us and our audience, what does it look like? And was there a transition that you went through at some point in time? I started out really primarily on the insurance side. So through my experience at Prudential, which was a um, for-profit company and that they are not offering whole life products. I first got my background in planning there, but their model was different and different than the opportunity that I had when I went to Guardian. When I went to Guardian, because it was a whole life company, their model and their planning strategies were different than on a universal platform, if you will. Um, Prudential had investments and property casualty division. So when I first came into the business, I got fully licensed in property casualty, life and health, did long-term care and um, investments. Investments was my secondary uh, line of business. Um, so at that time, of course, you know, they give you orphans. You know, I, I just came into the business. I was brand new, leaving corporate. Most of my um, clients that I built at that time were because we were doing all kinds of networking events, we were doing seminars, we were doing workshops, we were doing uh, financial literacy in faith-based communities. Um, because you know, when you first come into an insurance um, company, they're requiring you to have a lot of activity when you're brand new. So four and a half years of being held accountable to um, building a book of business um, with old accounts where people weren't being touched, touching people who were, of course, of all backgrounds, because in the insurance business, when people leave, it creates a ton of orphans. And so when you're brand new, they give you a lot of orphans to build your business. So that built my, my book of business in a very diverse fashion, because these were people that were basically handed off to me. And your goal is to um, maintain that business, grow your business from there. And then I was approached by a young man who introduced me to whole life strategies. And I left Prudential and went to Guardian. And on their platform, uh, they utilized whole life insurance and some very strategic planning as part of one's portfolio. It was, it was bigger than just life insurance. It was, you know, key man insurance. It was profit sharing plans in life insurance, 401k plans in life insurance, doing eyelets. I mean, it was a very complicated and strategic reverse tax planning strategies, um, which was my passion. I, I love what whole life insurance does for a person's portfolio. Um, so I did four years with uh, Guardian. Then I was approached by a young man, Keith Clark, who um, is my partner now. Um, who says, you know, come join me. He was a sole practitioner with Cambridge and um, he's becoming more senior and is looking for his succession plan. And so he encouraged me to join 
his ranks. And it's been a relationship that I never thought I would be. And I feel like he's my husband, my brother, my spouse, my, my boss, my, you know, I tell his wife all the time, I'm going to kill him, make sure his life insurance is paid up. But I love him dearly in that anytime we are out with clients, it is the best connection when you have a male-female partnership. Um, we never know whether the female's going to gravitate to me or the female's going to gravitate to him or vice versa, but it's just, it's been a, it's been a marriage um, with um, with Keith. And so I've been with Cambridge now with Keith for almost eight years. And um, so uh, um, we're, we're spread now. We've also just have another partner who just joined our very small team, <laughs> the three of us under Paradise Wealth Advisors, Judy Griffin, she's in St. Louis and Keith has relocated to uh, Atlanta and I'm in Pittsburgh. So we're spread out, but it's it's been a really good relationship um, with, uh, with the team. So now I'm, I've actually built a lot more of my business on the investment side now that I'm with Cambridge. So my, my business is probably 50-50 insurance um, investments. It's it, the insurance is really where my passion is. It's so creative what you can do with life insurance. Congratulations on um, that very successful journey. And I'm pleased to hear, you know, when when um, many, many years ago, the traditional space would be a lot like what you described. I think Keith probably looked like before he found his partners and um, our industry's talked about the challenges with the aging population and all of the solos. And it does my heart good to hear uh, about partnerships like yours that you're describing where people are finding others of, with core, you know, similar core values and like-minded approaches to what they're doing uh, so that they can build that succession plan and that continuation for those clients. So um, I'm excited for all three of you. That sounds great. I guess I don't think in our business we ever really fully retire. I think we slow down and we pick who we want to work with because our clients become so near and dear to us that, you know, it's hard to, to, to not be there for them in the time of need. Yeah, absolutely. Well, why we're talking about clients, why do you think it's important for clients or to clients to work with firms such as yours that are culturally diverse? Because we live in a, um, a very diverse world, it's, it's really good to have representation of all cultural so that from a cultural background, you can, can relate or at least understand a person's um, perspective. When we are um, limited to the different people that we either A, work with, from a um, colleague perspective or, or corporate perspective and or a client perspective, we get in our comfort zones. And I mean, it's one thing to be at the table, but if you're not invited to like really interact with the person and the person really seems like they're really interested in, in, in wants to really get to know you, there's just all these biases that happen when you don't know. We make assumptions. We look at, you know, we follow stereotypes. We don't really, um, it's just, I think we're, it's a big melting pot. And if we don't include everyone and really try to really get to know them, it just, 
you know, it, it's just been proven that any anytime you have a diverse population, what everyone brings to the table brings different perspectives, and it it just makes for a better project team, for a better um, community within an organization, because everybody feels warm and welcomed, um, and and included. And I think people like to see people that look like them. You know, that's part of the reason why when I first went to the Ignite conference, when I first started seeing people look like me, I'm thinking, well, I need to connect with them because we have similar stories, similar backgrounds, um, and then you're just comfortable, you know, but it's it still is good to be able to see, you know, for everyone to be able to see someone who looks like them, whether it's at Cambridge office when I went out to the office, it was the same things like, okay, wow, where's people that look like me and have a similar story like I do? Yeah, I always I think of it as um, from my from my own perspective as um, to your earlier point, everyone is unique and an office um, that embraces diversity offers the ability for a client to come in and to your point, perhaps see someone that looks like them or thinks like them or talks like them or whatever. Like every client is unique looking for something slightly different. And the more diversity you can include in your business, the better success you may have at making each one of those clients feel to your point included. Right. And we don't want to be offensive, you know, because every culture is different. And I would hate to lose business because I was not sensitive to someone's particular culture or their or their values if you don't understand what their core values are then how can you really serve them well this it just would be to my benefit to really understand different cultures and people's backgrounds from a, even trying to build my business um, and then i even find it even for me if someone feels that i'm not approachable because they're just not comfortable with me because they're not familiar you know it creates um, tensions that, you know, don't necessarily have to be there if we can find ways to, you know, make sure that everybody is, is feeling included and comfortable. Agreed. Great segue. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the work? I mentioned earlier that you are on our DE&I Advisory Council, and um, I appreciate, again, your leadership and contributions there. Uh, explain to our listeners a little bit about the work that you do on that council and what you've learned from your participation. You know, our, our goals were to to be committed to building a a program so that we can implement strategies that would increase diversity, equality, and inclusion across Cambridge Nation. Um, we were trying to really come up with initiatives where we could either, you know, from a recruiting perspective, educational perspective, and, you know, how do you reach, you know, community outreach? How do we reach individuals um, from a making the organization look more like us, you know, by cultivating an environment that is inclusive and where people feel they're accepted and they can trust that they are going to be supported. We broke out into two, two sub chapters. Well, um, to the, the council is the council in itself, but then we looked at recruiting and staffing and then internships. You know, how do we, you know, look at diversity, not so much just as, as race, but, you know, handicap, veterans, 
um, you know, uh, gay, lesbian community, other demographics, Asians, Hispanics. I mean, diversity is bigger than just one demographic. It is people who are not the same. And, um, and then how do you make them feel included? You know, I mean, it's, it's one thing to say, okay, we check the box and we have individuals that meet that demographic, but what are we doing to make them feel like they are included? Um, once they arrive there, we either need to, you know, come up with, you know, programs to help recruit individuals that make their practice either diverse, their firm diverse, and then even at corporate office, you know, how do we make the, you know, change the, the look of what Cambridge looks like on a whole. One thing that I've learned is that there's not a real clear path to it. You know, we sit there and we brainstorm and we're always trying to figure out, you know, how do we take this on? But it's, it's humongous. It is a humongous task. And um, when this is not everybody's primary job function, what, we, what we've all learned is how big it is. And that is not going to, you know, happen overnight. It is definitely going to be a work in progress to perpetuity. I mean, it's, 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 it's a huge undertaking. How do you, how do you get one, everybody on board to even take it seriously and to look at the benefits of and how it will help Cambridge Nation, the firm, you know, I'm part of a super OSJ and, you know, even just on, at that level, you know, what are they doing to, to really in, embrace diversity? Um, but it's, 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 been, it's been good because everyone is, has been very passionate. I'm glad that Cambridge has decided to do this and, you know, I commend you know, the, the leadership team and, and taking us on and even pulling us together. Yeah, you know, what I've been most impressed with, uh, quite honestly, over the last few years, as I've watched the DE&I committee and the council's contributions and, and the brainstorming and networking is the actionable initiatives that actually have come out of it. I think a lot of companies, Cambridge included, prior to two or three years ago, even the industry as a whole, we talked about the need for diversity. We focused for many, many years, 10 plus years for us alone on a couple of diversity channels such as next gen and women and celebrated the frustrating and in incremental small increases in the population of our financial advisors that represented those categories. And so this expansion to your point is huge as we look at many, many, many other channels and almost seem to be starting from the beginning, if you will. Um, and so what I learned is we can talk about it forever and have the right heart uh, and the right intent, but the real success is when some actionable initiatives come out of those discussions and I've seen the council and our committees really hit the ground running. And I feel like, you know, maybe the first year it was, a, it was still more talk, but now there's action. And that's definitely exciting to watch. You also play a major role in establishing the Black Advisor Group here at Cambridge. It's a collaborative group of Cambridge financial professionals, many of whom also with you serve on the DE&I Advisory Council. Explain to our listeners the role that that group plays and some of the initiatives that have come out of that. My goal, when I, like I said, when I first um, pulled everybody together was really to create a network so that we could lift each other up, be support, 
Um, you know, sometimes you, you, you might have a question and you want to ask someone else, but you have to feel comfortable asking someone. And it's always good to be able to vent, bounce ideas off of people who have similar experiences. Because if I just, just if my firm, if I just call somebody at the firm and they can't appreciate my struggle, it's always good to have someone who can really, who's relatable to the things that impact us um, differently. So what we do is, you know, we meet once a month and we really just, it's, it's really become a, just an open forum for information. And um, it's um, been refreshing that, and everybody doesn't always show up. We just, we just get together and you just, and just really, how's your business going? You know, what, you know, what are your best practices? You know, what can we do to, to lift each other up? Or even if we have, if I have a client that's relocated to another city, you know, since we have people all spread out, you know, I can refer them to someone on our team. And just, just because, you know, I have a relationship with them here, I can hand them off to, to, to someone else. This has really been a good network for us, a comfortable place where it's a judgment-free zone. We are um, able to really just have an outlet where we can celebrate our triumphs and, um, you know, then about some of our, our challenges. That's great. Thanks for sharing. Um, as I sat here listening to all of the benefits and advantages of what happens in that particular group, the words that came to mind were community and collaboration. And I don't think those things can be undervalued. They're, they they make a tremendous difference. Yeah, and it's like, we're like a family now. I just love the relationship that everyone has developed with each other, you know, cause we're like, we're, we're all in different places. Uh, we're all different ages. Everybody's practice is completely different. Um, so, I mean, it's just a, a, a great place to just 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 have a professional dialogue with with people who are who are like you and understand you know your your uh, specific differences again beautiful segue to my next question for you we are here to honor black history month today with a special edition of cambridge stronger tell our listeners how you personally recognize black history month so black history month for me um there's always activities because every organization, um, the community, they're always doing things. So, so I pick and choose what events I want to attend. I'm so engaged in community every month. I don't really say, okay, it's Black History Month. Let me, you know, specifically do something. But um, so this month I plan to attend. My girlfriend is the is counsel for the Pittsburgh Penguins, and she has started a well. She's counsel in HR, so she's created a opportunity for young Black children who have never been to a hockey game, who've never been on the ice. I plan to partner or attend her events. They're having um, Black Hockey Day at the Pittsburgh Arena, trying to get young Black children who do not have access to um, ice rinks. They set up in here in Pittsburgh a ice rink in the city so that the city kids could actually get time on ice and learn how to ice skate. So I've signed up for that. So I've been really excited about the Black Hockey Initiative for um, Black History Month um, under the leadership of the Pittsburgh Penguins and, and, and General Counsel. But I do workshops and community events every month um, in a community. So there's, and then of course, you know, with every 
one who's trying to make sure that everybody is clear and understanding all of the African Americans who have contributed to history. There's always information coming down the pike about, you know, individuals who were not receiving a lot of um, credit for their contribution to American history. So I enjoy reading up and researching on African Americans who have contributed to to history. You know, in the group, you know, everyone is really engaged in some either some community activities are doing on a regular, and or you know j- just being engaged with sharing information about uh, Black History Month. So I know the theme for Black History Month is health and wellness. Is there anything you're planning to do with your clients regarding that particular theme um, as it relates to maybe their financial wellness? Or do you have any thoughts on that? I'm part of a group that does a financial wellness every week. And I alternate with myself and some other financial professionals, bankers, title companies. There's a collaborative of us we do a uh, Facebook live page to just share information on health and or financial literacy. So I already do that um, in rotation with some other sociologists, psychologists, individuals who are in the community who are dealing with mental health and and so forth, um, just to provide information and open forum dialogue uh, for individuals who just need information. We do that from January to December. Um, So nothing is that's specific to Black History Month. We're just on a regular rotation, providing information to the community on um, health and financial wellness. Really honorable work. I have to say that um, and my personal opinion is that one of our country's biggest challenges that touches on many other things, but at the core, mental health is an area that needs a lot of attention. Um, and we know in our business that certainly financial wellness goes along with that in so many ways. So thank you for your work there. I'm always surprised by, you know, because every time they say, well, Connie, give me your talk points. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm so high level with my talk points. And then when they're asking questions, I'm thinking, wow, you know, they're asking me questions. I'm thinking that everybody knows. I'm thinking everybody knows that. And it's always a wake-up call for me how much we are needed by the questions that I'm asked. I'm thinking, my goodness, I need to get out there more and break it down to like the very basic fundamentals of financial literacy. And I'm thinking, okay, everybody, let's talk pensions. They're like, what's a pension? Okay, all right. <laughs> it's, it's always amazes me the questions. I'm thinking, man, you know, because I can't even come up with talk points like we're going to talk about opening up a bank account. Like I just can't <laughs> do that, you know. I know financial literacy is near and dear to your heart. Um, are there any other activities specifically related to financial literacy that you think our audience? should be considering um, getting involved in and maybe in their own communities because it is such a large part of the future. I, I think going to the high schools, I mean, I, I think it's a, it's a sin that it's not a requirement that high school children have a course in financial literacy before they graduate. I mean, I think that would be a an initiative that you know, we all could take on to just really make sure that our kids, when they graduate from schools, enter college, before they start taking out student loans, getting credit cards, wanting to buy a car and all that kind of stuff, that they actually understand basic financial literacy. And if they did that, 
you know, fast forward to, you know, all of our audiences that I've run into after they get jobs or making money and then, but they're still don't know how to manage cash. They're still not uh, understanding debt and how debt products work for their benefit and how they could be, you know, I mean, they're a blessing and a curse. Um, yeah, but I think if, if we could really, you know, look at our kids and really start, start there with our kids, helping them to understand um, financial literacy, I think it would go a long way. I couldn't agree more. I almost uh, wonder if these days it doesn't make sense to build some kind of curriculum structure around even a middle school level. I don't know about you, but my, I mean, I have two children and they're adults now, but, you know, even as a parental failure, they don't know how to write checks out. <laughs> and I know nobody has a checkbook today, but they probably should. I don't know about you. I still write a couple checks a month because there is some part of society here that still maybe doesn't have Venmo or Zelle. And uh, I find myself in a place where I have the need to write a check. And I remember when my kids were, you know, in high school or getting ready even to go to college and a, a I'd bring something up like that. And they'd be like, you got to remind me again, how do I do that? Um, so I think both from a community and parent perspective, we probably do, we're busy and we're forgetting the basics. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, the, and especially the way financial products are, ch are changing. Um, and, you know, with all of these cash apps and so forth like that, our, our kids need to be, made aware that, you know, money doesn't grow on trees. So you just can't just keep cashing because what happens is the parents end up like, oh my God, you know, they've been, they're always asking me to cash them some money because they think money grows on trees. And, and um, it's, you know, it's a real conversation. I think parents should have with the kids to, you know, really share this is, this is how much income we have. This is how much goes out. This is what's left over. This is what we have to save. And, and it has to be real for them to really understand it. You know, the buck stops here at some point, you know, but if they don't, if they can't feel that pain, you know, they're going to, you know, they're, they're, they're typically not going to be good money managers unless they just, you know, cause some, some people just have that, they're just built with it. Like, I'm just going to save everything I have and I'm going to make wise decisions. But for the most part, you know, our young people are, you know, and they, they have pressures that I didn't have when I was coming up. I didn't have all the technology, cell phones, designer clothes, all that kind of stuff to worry about um, in my in my early years. I didn't I didn't get my first cell phone until I was 26. <laughs> you know I mean? It was just so, a few years ago. <laughs> yeah, just, yeah, like yesterday, I just got a cell phone. But <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's just so different now with these debit cards for kids and there's just all kinds of stuff for them. So I think it would be good to really educate them absolutely at the middle school level as well. I've talked to a couple other financial professionals of ours who've planted the idea that really resonated with me largely that some of this, uh, call it money talk, is a generational thing that, you know, maybe we're not really 28 years old. So we'll tell the audience that we're a few years older than that, but our parents were probably raised in an environment where you didn't talk about money at the dinner table. And today there isn't even a dinner table, but even in the house, it's, it's something that hopefully will work its way to where, to your point, it's a much more transparent conversation, but do you have clients that 
bring their children to any kinds of these conversations with you? Do you see that? Is that happening yet at any level? No, I, I, I have not had a client who's brought, now I do have a client who has children that are earning money who, she, she keeps calling saying, we need to sit down, I want you to teach the kids. And, and they call and ask me questions, they reach out to me. You know, um, one, the daughter is eight and she created a coloring book and she's earned money from it. And, you know, it's just sitting in a, you know, in a savings account. And then the, the son, he is a musician, so he's been earning money with his with his band. So he's, you know, he's he has some monies and but, you know, she's wants them to really understand how it works. So although we've talked about it and but in this environment where everybody's doing meetings via Zoom, I haven't had the opportunity to really sit down with them and as a family meeting to discuss how money works, you know, how to save, get prepared to go to school and, and so forth like that. But they're they're saving. I mean, they, you know, their mother did a great job teaching them how to save money. But of course, they just want to spend hers. So, well, you know. um, they're spending their inheritance, perhaps. But uh, as long as they are getting the concept of savings, maybe we made one all step forward, right? Yeah, but when they're when they're older, it's easier to get the parents and the children because now the parents, I mean, the children are thinking parents are getting older. I need to meet with the advisor so that when it's time to do wealth transfer, you know, they want to be clear, you know, where things are, what, you know, how to prepare for that, but um, not the um, school age children who before they go off to school. Well, Connie, we're nearing the end of our time. I love to end my podcast with a little bit of inspiration for anybody that's considering this honorable profession that you're in and allowing my guests to share that they actually have some free time and what they do in that free time. Because I think, unfortunately, our industry in particular has gotten a bit of a bad rap that there is no balance and uh, it's all work and no fun. So would you mind sharing what you do in your free time and whether or not you have any hobbies? I am part of a women's group and in my women's group, we are very active ladies. So just, what was it, a week ago, I went, we went to Top Golf and we hit balls and then we left there and went to the gun range and then we um, went to dinner. But I I am a very active person as much as possible. Um, And I'm blessed to have friends who like to travel, like to actually are, are very creative between going to a concert, going to Van Gogh art show, going to, um, uh, I, I love roller skating. I love to roller skate, um, which I'm not a good ice skater at all. I'm not a good ice skater, but I love to roller skate. Once you challenge me, I'm never going to say no. All you have to do is call me, say, coin, let's, and I'm like, let's do it. So I'm a very, so whether it's a wine tasting or it's sledding, <laughs> You know, I'm going to do it. So, so, but my hobbies, yeah. So my hobbies are having fun. Anything that requires interactive time with people that I care about, 
um, I am open for the challenge. There you go, Cambridge Stronger listeners and fans. Financial services people can be fun. So um, it sounds like I need to come and visit you so I can figure out how to have more fun um, because you are one busy, busy person. So thank you for sharing. Connie, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for agreeing to honor Black History Month with us and sharing a little bit of your perspective. You're a really awesome example of Cambridge Stronger, and I have really enjoyed getting to know you better. Thank you for tuning in to Cambridge Stronger. I invite you to listen to my podcast episodes where I have candid conversations with genuine inspirational financial professionals and leaders within this fiercely independent financial services industry. The best of the best, the strongest of the strongest. You can listen to my podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, iHeartRadio, and the Podbean app.